Welcome to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast, where our team is helping people build their financial freedom. And one of the things we talk a lot about is saving and investing 25% of one's income. And I'm your host, Joel Farrell. And each week we dig into the ways that people are generating more income to be able to save more money and the ways that they are investing that hard-earned dollar. And lastly, the how, how people are making these changes. Because again, we're talking about changes. We're talking about changing behaviors. Let's get into today's content so we can help you on your financial journey towards living a life with the power of choice. Welcome back to another episode of the Striver 25 podcast. I've got an amazing guest today, Gaetano Chambriello. And uh, this guy's a rock star. He's a budding rock star in the Northeast. And he is a real estate investor, a mortgage professional, and uh, a few other things cooking, I'm sure. But uh, give our listeners a little bit of a background on who you are. 100%. And you nailed it right on the head with the, with the name. So love that. Yeah, my name's Gaetano. I'm a mortgage lender, uh, family business. My dad started 25 years ago. Uh, actually, when I was born, he was working like a blue collar job, left that, took uh, maternity or, you know, paternity leave for six months, got into the mortgage business six months after that, started his own company. So he's been doing that for 25 years, always a small shop. My brother and I joined around the same time in June of 2020. And then right before I left my old job, I spent a year working on Wall Street. I bought my first property. I still had my W-2 income. Uh, that was my first student rental, April of 2020. And have been building a portfolio since then, partnered with my brother who's in the mortgage business with me and my brother-in-law uh, as well. There's three of us total. And we now have 16 units and we rent to 80 college students. And that's in Fairfield, Connecticut. So I'm building the mortgage business and the student housing business right now. And, and not to, to add too much onto it, but you're also pretty active on, on Twitter uh, amongst other places too. And so that's something I want to dig into a little bit uh, along the way. Um, so for our listeners out there, um, you know, you mentioned being on Wall Street. So you started on Wall Street, did that for a year. Uh, how did you get to that? Kind of give us a little backstory on, on that first. Yeah. So I went to Fairfield Prep, an all boys Jesuit high school, Fairfield, Connecticut, pretty wealthy school and saw a lot of my dad's buddies did very well. Always wondered what they did. A lot of them worked in finance in Manhattan one way or another. I go to Fordham after I graduate from Fairfield Prep, which is in the Bronx, 20 minutes outside of Manhattan to, to get to Grand Central the trip by train. And after my freshman year, I work at a mortgage company, large mortgage company in Connecticut. They're, they're almost nationwide now. And uh, I got that from a dad's friend who, uh, or excuse me, yeah, from my dad's friend who set me up in the closing department. I was doing like verification of employment, like confirming homeowner's insurance, like my freshman year of college, three days a week. I go into my sophomore year. I got all my partying out of my system freshman year. So Fordham's a big bar school. I mean, we were going out three, four nights a week. Got that out of my system. Sophomore year, I'm like, all right, I got to get serious about getting a job. So I remember cold emailing, cold messaging people on LinkedIn uh, that were in finance, just having conversations, like seeing what they did for work, find out what I re really want to do. I started that October, my sophomore year by... January, I knew I probably had about 140 conversations at that point. I knew that I wanted to get into sales and trading. So started visiting trading floors uh, around that time. And I was still emailing people. I emailed, uh, cold emailed a CEO of a real estate investment trust, Mortgage REIT in Manhattan. They were in the Jeffries building on 52nd in Lex, I think, or 52nd in Madison, something like that. And uh, he's like, hey, your resume looks great. Why don't you come in for an interview? I had no idea. I didn't even realize who he was when I emailed him. 
So went in sophomore year, got the internship, worked at a mortgage REIT. It was called Chimera Investment Trust. Uh, super interesting what they did. And it was my first experience working in Manhattan. So commuted from Fordham that summer to go there. Come back and I'm you know, working hard to get an internship junior year. Usually the way it works in finance is if you get a junior year internship after your junior year, at the end, they'll give you a full-time offer to come back and you know, work full-time when you graduate. So you know, same thing, networking, trying to make it happen, visiting trading floors, ended up getting an offer at Citigroup, did the summer, got a full-time offer, and then went back and started working there after I graduated. And that was in June of 2019. And then spent the full year working at Citigroup on the bond desk, uh, interest rate derivative sales desk. And that, I mean, the, the story of how I got that, how I thought I was going to be there a long time, and what ended up happening is funny. And I was, it ended up not working out. It was not what I thought it was. And uh, ended up working my dad starting in June, 2020. Do you want to share a little bit about what you expected versus what the reality was in that, in that world? So you, know, you don't a, have to, if you don't want to. No, hell yeah. I mean, it's a funny story. So as an intern, you're not licensed, you know, to be on the sales and trading desk, what you're doing is you're matching hedge funds, pension funds, uh, asset management firms, and you're providing them liquidity to buy and sell, you know, government bonds, swap derivatives, things of that nature. As an intern, you're not licensed. You can't sell, you can't trade. So you can't do anything. As an intern, you shadow people, meaning you just watch what they do each day. And you're usually asking questions. You're going out to coffees with people, really just getting, getting to know a little bit about the business. And it's more of a relationship building exercise because you can't do any actual work. So you're just meeting people all day long. And I loved it. I was shadowing multiple people a day. Honestly, you're like kind of screwing around on the desk, making jokes, like, but also asking intelligent questions. You'd go out for coffee with people. As an intern, nobody's looking. No one's like, where's Gaetano? Like he's got to get work done. So like there were times where I would just disappear for like three hours and just like go get coffee with people, uh, network, meet, go out with my buddies and just like, you know, shoot, shoot the shit about how the day's going. And I was like, this is great. I'm meeting a ton of people. Everybody loves me. I love everybody. We're having a blast. You know, I'm, I'm doing my thing like where I'm still getting like the, the minute, bare minimum I'm done with work. I'm like, I could, you know, be here 20 years. I could run a desk. I mean, if this is what the job is like. This is phenomenal. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm having a ball. So get a full-time offer because really to get an offer, all you have to do is, is be likable, be somewhat smart and, and show interest, uh, especially if you're in sales. So got a full-time offer, went back, started in June. We did three months of training. It was nine to five, super simple. When you start on the desk the day after Labor Day, it's like, you know, drinking from a fire hose, like ice bucket goes right on your face. Like, oh my God, night and day. You're in the, you're on the desk at 545. You're there till probably about 7 PM. And I was like, whoa, this is not what I thought it was. This was not like the internship or training where I was just screwing around all day. So ended up you know, after about two weeks realizing this was not for me, it's not what I thought I signed up for. I enjoyed more meeting people, going out, you know, building relationships. Uh, the actual job, I was on a flow desk, meaning very back and forth, really quick pace. So interest rate sales is all done over Bloomberg chat. And because it's quick pace and it's not like uh, mortgage-backed securities where maybe it's more structured trades that take longer to put together, you're always on chat. You're always on, which I did not like. Like you, you had to jog to take a piss and come back. Otherwise people would be like, what the hell, where, where were you? So it was like, it was that fast paced. And uh, that's, that's why I ended up not being there as long as I thought, which wasn't for me. But for some people, 
they love that, they enjoy that or whatever. And then you get into the mortgage industry, right? And, and I think, you know, I've been obviously been in the business for a long time and not everybody gets the mortgage industry and the kind of what it takes and the mindset. Um, it, it, it's crazy 24 seven. It can be depending on the, on the situation, but yep. um, how was that transition and, and kind of what was that like getting into the mortgage industry uh, full time uh, thereafter? Yeah, definitely. And, and to say, I mean, there's guys in the business I used to be in that have been in it for 25, 30 years. They love it. And if you're doing a, a flow type product, you're selling that versus you're selling a structured product. It's night and day what your day-to-day looks like. So that's got to be said too. I might've just been in the wrong product and business was great. So that might've been part of it. The, the transition to the mortgage business, I started when in a major refinance boom. I mean, rates were cratering to 3%. In those first six months in the business, it was just the way I started is I came in, my my dad never really uh, harvested his past client database. So he had a ton of people. He would, if people reach out to him, he's going to get business, but he wasn't proactively reaching out to his database to refinance or help them, you know, with saving money, et cetera. So right away, that was the biggest opportunities. I came in and just went through his database and started calling people and let in creating mortgage plans, showing them where, where they were now, what it would look like if they refinanced. And, you know, it, it was numbers. It made sense for everybody. So the mortgage business is a lot of hustle. If you're willing to put the work in, you know, pick up the phone, dial, you can do very well. And that's what the first like six to nine months were, was just calling past database, getting in front of people, and then sharing on social media that I'm in the business, sharing ways that I can help people, whether it was refinancing or buying a home and just, you know, continuing to build a brand and get your name out there. Real quick, before you kind of continue to go on on this journey with us, uh, for the listeners out there, where can they find you? Speaking of social media, where can they find you online? Uh, G-Chams, G-C-I-A-M-S. Instagram, G-Chams, do that one more time. G-C-I-A-M-S. Yeah, it's it's all my handles. So, if I boom, things are busy, talking to clients, showing them the value, the benefits of potentially being able to look at a refinance. Yep. Rates are in the threes and that, and that's 2020, right? Yeah. At that, at that point. And yeah. rates continue to go down. I mean, there are rates in the twos. It's, it's, not, it's along the, along the way. Oh yeah. I mean, 2021, it was in the twos. So like 2021 just was what 2020 was for the first six months I was in the business. And, you know, first six months, I think I did about 9 million. 2021, I did about 35 or 36 and about half of it, it was 18, 18, pretty much 18 purchase, 18 refi. And it was just, I came in at the right time. I got lucky with timing and was able to do a good job for a lot of clients. And honestly built up a client database at that point of like, you know, that one year, I think it did about 130 loans. That was just a lot of it was refinances. And which is super important looking back because you're, you do a good job for a client. You're able to reach back out to them for repeat business. So the lifetime value of a client, you know, goes up tremendously. Uh, and then, you know, 2022 was last year, all purchase. I think I did 90, like 5% purchase business. If I did 20 million last year, 19 of it was probably like purchase. And the change from refinance business and mortgage business, refinances, pick up the phone and dial. You're calling your past database, you're cold calling people, and you're just explaining the benefit of refinancing. Purchase business is very relationship driven. So you're building relationships in your local community, realtors, financial advisors, CPAs, past clients to generate business. And that's what drove business last year. And that's what I'm focusing on moving forward. So in 2022, kind of taking what you're talking about, because, you know, 
you're in the business, right? You're in the eye of the storm, so to speak. Yeah. And you're helping other people be able to purchase real estate, which, you know, you and I both know is a tool to be able to build wealth. And I want to dig into the kind of the student housing here uh, later on in the journey uh, on this talk. Um, but in 2022, it was really a tale of two halves, you know, 2022 yeah. for us, like, you know, was pretty similar ish mm -hmm. to previous years, second half of the year, just things, just the amount of activity just, just trailed off. And, you know, rates were locking rates in the, in the three, the low threes in December of 21. And then by June, it was in the mid sixes. And so the number of people that could qualify was obviously dramatically lower, but the people that wanted to do anything, it should have too, because of the, I think people are just scared and it's still are scared of, of what's to come and the unknown and no, no fault to anybody. It's just, there's market conditions that move so fast. There's a lot of um, uncertainty. And so with uh, the type of clients that you've been able to kind of build a relationship with and work with, what percentage of that was a first time home buyer? Just complete guess. Close to 50%. Okay. In 2022, I did 90, you know, like I said, probably 19 million to purchase. And, and out of that, 50% of those were first time home buyers. So I, I saw a stat come out uh, earlier in the year from uh, NAR, National Association of Realtors, that the average age of a first time home buyer hit 35 or 36, which a few years previous, it was like 28. And, mm -hmm. you know, data is obviously can be misleading depending on the scope and the, the parameters that are, that are input into the data. But the number of transactions were dramatically lower than in previous years. And obviously prices and rates have gone up considerably. So a lot of the, the younger crowd is not able to or, or, or wants to be able to purchase. So another question for you on that, just pure guess that of that first time home buyer crowd, how many of those would you say are under 30, are under, under 30 years old in, in last year's data for, for you? If I did, let's say out of the, all the first time home buyers that I worked with, I would say probably less than 30, about 20 to 25%. The majority were 30 plus. Okay, cool. And, you know, as we've seen, you see higher home prices, you see more student debt, and it just becomes less affordable for people getting their start unless they're making, you know, $80,000 a year to go buy their first place. So I'm in the Midwest, I'm in St. Louis, and this is one of the most affordable places in terms of big cities in the country. Um, you know, I were just talking about this. I was in Florida um, this past week, and that's more of a short-term rental. So prices are, are higher on the beach there. And there's other pockets where the DC market is considered a high cost area, LA, a high cost area where the county limits are, are higher. Um, in your market in Connecticut, kind of where would you gauge the average price point is just, just across the board, just average price point uh, in your, in your area? In my market, it's probably like 600 K. Cool. If um, the, the town I live in during the summer, it's close to a million where I live in the rest of the year. It's probably close to like 550. Okay. Cause so I think uh, median sales data, I think the average price is like in the 450. So yep. a little bit higher than maybe some of the other markets, uh, obviously it's the Northeast. So it's going to be, it's going to be higher than, than, than most areas anyway. Yeah. So good. I was going to say we're a high balance County, you know, the County that I originally loans up. Yeah. Okay. So, so the kind of limit 726 or whatever it is, wh wh where are you guys at right now in terms of your limit? Actually, now, now that you say that we're not high balance. Like if you go last year, we were at 695 when the conform was 647. Um, yeah. Westchester right over the border was 822. So we're not like super high balance, but we were above conforming. Okay. So, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, the, the, the requirements to be able to purchase a home, you know, yeah, obviously you're going to have to have a down payment and closing costs. And so somebody that's under 30 years old trying to buy a house, you know, I guess what would be a first time home buyer type of, of price range? 
can you get something in the fours or threes or where, where, where are you seeing some of those first time home buyers? Like what, what price point are they buying in? They're buying usually between like three fifty and like five fifty. Okay. For single family homes. I do a ton of two to four unit FHA loans where a buyer is going to live in one unit and rent the other units out. When you're buying a multifamily two to four unit, as you know, you can use the rental income from the units you're not going to be living in to help you qualify. So maybe for a single family, you only qualify for 400K. But if you're buying a three family, it's now, you know, five and a quarter, 525,000. Cool. So let's, let's dig in there. Let, let's dig in. So let's say you buy a single family property for 400,000, right? Yep. And you're going to do FHA. Say your credit score is 660, FHA down payment plus closing costs. Yep. You know, with our calculators and all this in front of us, you know, what would you gauge the out of pocket would be if you just assume full closing cost? So whenever so, I talk to a buyer, I usually say, you know, three and a half percent is your down payment, closing costs of about two and a half percent, roughly. You need six percent. So of four hundred, it's like twenty five thousand. It's twenty four. So we'll say call it twenty five thousand. Okay. If you're buying a single family. Cool. And then that person that's going to buy that multifamily, yep. say five twenty five times six percent, you're looking at like thirty one thousand five hundred. Okay. So it's only a difference of roughly like seven grand. Okay. But then now here's where it gets the, interesting. Yeah, go ahead. The, the payment for that single family home might be 2,800. So each month you're going to have a net housing expense of $2,800 out of your pocket. If you go buy at 525, let's say your payment's now 3,800, a full $1,000 more. We'll even call it 4,000 just for round numbers. But if you're buying a three family and you're able to collect $1,500 in rent from each unit, and then you live in one of the units, you're taking that $4,000 payment down to $1,000 net out of your pocket. So even if you have to pay uh, you know, a few extra expenses, you're going from $2,700 to $1,000. So $1,700 a month you're saving, which, what is that? It's like 19, it's like 20 grand pretty much over a year is what now you're going to be able to save and either put towards your next down payment or just help with your lifestyle costs. And, and that and, example was how many units? I'm sorry. Three. Okay. So, so three units. Okay. So, so in your area, the amount of multifamilies, because some places don't have multifamilies, some place, but, but many cities do. Would you say that that's a, it's a, a good amount that's out there in terms of the supply or is it limited or what, how would you explain that in your market? Right now it's definitely tighter than most in Connecticut. There's not, there's no new builds going on. So it's, there's not as much new construction as a place like where you're from. So it's a little bit tougher um, for supply. I have this background. I don't know. Okay. So, but even if you took a two family, for example, and let's say the rents were a little bit higher, let's say it was 1800 and your payment's still four grand. You're still going to drop your net payment to 2200 versus 2700 on the single family. So when somebody decides to kind of go down that path, Right. There's yep. some, there's pros and cons in terms of your living situation, because if you're on a single family house, right, you're all, all by yourself, you know, obviously you're doing the maintenance on all by yourself, but you don't have anybody near you or above you or neighbors or whatnot versus a multifamily where you have, you know, a neighbor or somebody above you or below you and you have to deal with, you know, rents and, and, and dealing with the tenants and all that stuff. And that's probably for a different conversation. But when you roll the clock forward, can you kind of share a little bit of kind of what's, why is that so important or, or why can it be powerful for somebody to be aware of, of, of how powerful FHA multifamily can be. Yeah. So if you're buying with an FHA multifamily loan, year one, like we said, let's just say 
your payment was four grand and it's, we're going to use a duplex and you can rent it for two grand for round numbers. Cause that's probably roughly what my market is. So your net payments now $2,000 versus if you bought a single family, it's 2,800. Let's say after a year you decide to move out and now you're, you know, breaking even, or you're collecting 4k in rental income and your mortgage payment is 3,800. So now you're cash flowing slightly a bit, but what's happening, let's say you're just breaking even after expenses. You're building equity each year. So each year tenants are paying down your rent or paying down your mortgage. You're in a 30-year fixed rate loan. So additionally, each year, if rental income increases, if the gross rent you're able to collect increases, your payment's not going up. Your expenses aren't going up. So you're able to actually increase your return each year because your debt's fixed. You, if the house appreciates in value, great. You know, that's another benefit. But from a standpoint of if you're cash flowing at all when you move out, now you could go buy a single family home and use any of the cash flow you're getting to help offset your new mortgage payment. Anything well, you could do to lower your housing expense is crucial because like that first example, I gave you a three family and your, your housing expense went from 2,700 to a thousand a month. If you only have to cover a thousand dollars a month, you're going to be in a better position to take risks. And by risks, I mean, you might take a full commission job, you know, or a sales job that has higher upside than a $80,000 salary position, the sales job might, you might be able to make 250. It's going to be tougher to take that if you have to pay $2,700 a month versus if you can do a thousand a month, you're like, okay, I could probably make it work. And it's small things that compound over time. If you do get a sales job and you make 250, you're not going to be there forever. But like, you know, then you take the extra money you're making there and then you roll into more real estate and things just compound all the, you know, over time. So the average person who say 25 and, and how old are you right now? 25. Yeah. So you're 25. So the average person that's in your age range in their mid twenties, that's not purchasing, right? They're renting or, or living rent free. What do you think is the biggest thing that's stopping them besides money? Because money is, is, is just part of the puzzle. What, what's the biggest thing that's stopping that person from taking the leap into real estate? If it's not, one, it's education and understanding it's feasible and that they can do it. Well, the first is education. The second is them thinking they can't do it or there's a reason that they might not be eligible or something's holding them back when in reality, it's not true. And, and those are those are two really, really important things that, that kind of cross over and complement each other. Um, but education by itself, what do, you, what do you think is one thing that somebody needs to hear or, or understand to really understand the power of real estate that's in that, in that early you know, mid-20s range? I think a lot of people get nervous that if they buy a house, the amount of responsibility that comes with it, that they have to, if they get a call from a tenant that the toilet's leaking, they have to go fix it. In reality, you don't have to be the property, you're the property manager, but you don't have to be the, the contractor that goes out and fixes everything. You, you could pick up the phone and find somebody to do that. I think people get overwhelmed with all the things that could go wrong with a property and things do go wrong, but you just have to take it one step at a time. If somebody calls you with a problem, you have to find out who to call. You call them, you set up a time for them to come visit, fix the problem, and you just take things one step at a time. But when, you, when you're looking at everything and it looks like such a big picture problem, you can't break it down into small steps and realize like, that's how you, you know, get over, overcome that obstacle. And then, and then believe they can do that. Right. I mean, maybe just trying to simplify things and, and take it, like you said, one step at a time. Even, anything exact, else? Yeah. Even if you're looking to qualify for a, like buy a home and get pre-approved and find out how much money you're going to need. The first step is just to call a lender and have a consultation and then fill out an application and then submit your documentation and during that consultation, you'll find out, you know, what credit score you roughly need, 
how much income you're going to need, how many, how much an assets you're going to need. And by just doing one step at a time, you'll be able to start buying real estate, but you have to just, you know, take a little step forward. So kind of getting back to your student rental stuff. So um, when you say student rental, what does that actually mean for the listeners out there? We buy single families, duplexes, mostly residential homes. We're usually doing some kind of renovation work, sometimes cosmetic all the way down to full gut rehabs. Once we renovate the property, if we can, we're going to pull money out, cash out, refinance our home equity line of credit. We're going to rent these to students. And then we're going to continue to repeat that process. And the first one you purchased that you turned into a student rental, can you explain that again? That was your first per, per, uh, first property you purchased as a multifamily? Single family home. A single family. Okay, so you purchased a single so, family as a primary? Initially? Correct. I, I got my start with a 650 purchase price in Fairfield, Connecticut. I put 10% down. I got a 10% gift from my mom. I had to put 20% down because my debt to income ratio was too high otherwise. So 20% down payment. You have to live in it for a year. And then after a year, you can move out, turn it into a student rental or any kind of rental. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got my start. So if it was my decision, if I could have qualified, I would have put less money down, but I didn't, my, my DTI was too high. So I had to put 20% down. My mom was, I was in a great position where she could give me a gift for that. So if that wasn't an opportunity and we're talking about some of the people you mentioned that in terms of first time home buyers, that price range, yep. maybe it's a little bit lower Then would you just gone to a, a lower price point and take it out if you didn't have that option? Yeah. Could have, I could have switched to an FHA loan. I could have went to a lower price point. Um, both of those would have been good. So at, at that moment in time, buying as a primary residence, do you, did you know what you were doing in terms of turning it into a rental is your future uh, plan? I had an idea. I, so my, my mom started buying in that same market about a year and a half ago. I saw the opportunity that was there and was like, this could be a slam dunk. So for me, I originally was actually going under contract, assuming I'd be able to live in it and put less money down. Once I was under contract, I'm still working my W2 job. And I was like doing the actual pre-approval myself. So just like, you know, wasn't even focused on it, went under contract. And then I was like, I'll figure it out after. And then found out, you know, DTI was too high. So that, that's what happened. But yeah, it, I went in knowing I'd buy it as a primary, but with long-term plans to rent it out. So then time goes by, you quit your, quit the job, quit the, the W2 job. Yep. And then kind of what was the next step on your path? Yeah. So that was April of 2020, three months go by, I quit my W2 job. Um, we're going to fast forward all the way, you know, I'm, I'm working with my dad six months, um, through the end of the year. Now it's 2021 rolls around to like May. Now I've rented out my house. I have students in there and it's getting ready for the summer for summer tenants. And I want to buy another one and a house comes on the market, single family And my house also appreciated in value over that year during COVID home prices went up and I had, I put 20% down at the time. So I pulled out a home equity line of credit and had money that I could invest. And I was making money from the mortgage business because it was, you know, doing so well. So house comes on the market for like seven fifty. My brother wants to buy it and I want to buy it. My younger brother, we both put offers in on it separately and neither of us got it. So we're like, this makes no sense. Like we're going to start competing against each other. We're like, why don't we just start partnering up and buying together? So my brother-in-law, same thing. He was, you know, want to start investing. So we came together and about 
a month and a half, early July, a two-family comes on the market. And that was our next purchase. Came on, uh, we jumped on it quick, knew it was going to be a great great deal. It was listed for six fifty. We ended up buying it at like seven ten. And so that was middle of 21? Yep, July 2021. Okay, so on that deal, two unit, you, you mentioned your brother and your brother-in-law. So how did you guys you know, finalize the financing? Who was on it and what type of financing did you do? Yeah. So for that property, my brother-in-law was just, so my, they just got married. They had one kid and they were renting a place in Fairfield, the same town. He ended up doing 15% down, moved into that property, spent a year living there. And that was a home run because we were, we were able to put less money down because he was going to live in it. So we put 15% down instead of 25, which was huge. We had to put a little bit more down because the appraisal came in low. So what, what kind of loan was that? A conventional two family loan with 15% down. Okay. So the, the guidelines say 15% down on a conventional. Correct. If, yep. if it's a two unit primary and yeah. why, why not FHA? At the time we had enough money for conventional. We didn't know how many we would buy. PMI was going to be so much cheaper that, you know, the loan amount was 588 for, for FHA. It would have been like 650. So we were just running numbers and like, we would rather at that point pay more for the down payment than get an FHA loan. It was an option. We just decided not to go with it. Oh cool. yeah. Cause I think what, from just basically guessing, what do you think? Three times the amount of the monthly PMI? Oh FHA. no, more than that. I mean, the PMI, you put 15% down. He probably was, we we're paying like $48 a month in PMI okay. on a $600,000 loan at 85. It would have been like 450 a month. Yeah. Would have been like nine times or 10 times. So, so he buys that in his own name, right? Correct. And, yep. And then what happens next? Every time we buy something in our personal name, we're, we're always going to quick claim it to an LLC as well. I've heard mixed reviews of whether people do it or not, but we always put it into a LLC after we close on it. Okay. After that, so we actually closed on that like middle of June of 21. I, I was working on a larger deal. It was an eight family or uh, an eight unit. It's five structures on one lot. And that was rented to like market rate tenants. It was right in the same area that we were buying properties. Like it was a slam dunk location. And I, I pulled a list of owners in the area I wanted to buy. I started cold calling this guy. I started cold calling in January of 21. He was like, didn't want to talk to me. I call him back a month later. Still doesn't want to talk to me. Now it's March. I call him. I'm like, Hey, I'm not a broker. Cause he thought I wanted to list his property. I'm like, I'm interested in buying it. You know, can, can you have a few minutes to talk? He's like, fine. You know, what, what do you want to know? We chat. He's like, okay. He gives me all the numbers, NOI, rental income expenses, what he wants for it. He's like, I'm going to be back from Florida. I'm in Naples right now. I'll be back in two weeks. Meet me at the property. I'm like, sure. So I call him up the day he said he was going to come home. We meet at the property, walk around. I'm like, I like it. He, so I go, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think you want for it? He's like, well, you know, I was thinking about two, one is, is, would be a fair price. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, two, one. I'm, I'm thinking in my head, like one, it was a slam dunk at two, one, but I'm like, it's kind of high. I'm like, how about like, how about like, let me think about it. I was thinking more one, eight, five. He's like, if, you, if you're thinking that, like, don't bother coming back to me. So I'm like, Jesus. So I go home, talk with uh, my dad, my mom, my brother-in-law and my brother, my, my sister too, of course. Um, tell him about the deal and we're running numbers. We, we know that's gonna be a home run. So we signed the contract at 2-1. We go under contract. 
I try lining up financing for like the next two and a half months and no bank or credit union would lend on it. I can't do the loan as a mortgage company because it's larger than five units. So when you get above four units, it goes from residential financing to commercial financing. So at that point, you have to go to banks, credit unions, um, and, and really like alternative debt funds. And no one wanted to touch it because the debt service was about 150,000 or it was close to one times. Because the rents were so far below market, the NOI wasn't even 1.2x. So no bank was going to touch it. So what we ended up doing was getting a hard money loan for 1.7 million, had to put down 400,000. And we got a 12 month loan, interest only, 10% rate. We paid a point up front. We paid a point on the way out. It allowed us to buy the property, make some renovations, get students in there for leasing, raise the net operating rate, raise the rental income, which also raised the net operating income. And then what happened about eight months after that, like, you know, seven or eight months, we took the raised NOI to a credit union and they ended up allowing us to refinance that hard money loan, that bridge loan into permanent debt, which I now have a 30 year amortization, five year, it's a 10 year balloon with a five year fixed rate resets once after five years for another five years. And How much I, lower was that rate? So I went from 8.99% on the hard money loan to, I locked that rate in February of 21 and, or excuse me, February 22, right? As we talked earlier on this podcast, rates started rising. So I didn't close until June and it was a nightmare of how long it took, but they held the rate lock. So I had a 4.625 rate on a 30 year and which has been a home run. So awesome. yeah, so I was able to squeeze it in then. Um, the 400 K we came up with up front was a mix of myself, my brother, and my dad. So my dad was 50% owner in that property and pretty much like, you know, fronted the money for, for half of the equity we needed. So that's how we funded that project. Um, we've since, you know, raised rents. We have at least out for this current year, next year, and the year after. And, um, you know, I don't know what the game plan is with that. If we're ever going to refinance it in the next before the rate resets, but come the time it's going to reset, we might look at doing a cash out refinance because we raised the NOI so much that there's, you know, the, the value of the property based on a cap rate has gone up. And now we're going to, we have a ton of equity we could probably tap into. I love it. I love it. So we talk about, you know, this process, getting into real estate, planning, you know, you mentioned appreciation. I, I think it's important to, to talk, talk, to talk about this just for a second, because, you know, one of the examples that we talk about a lot on this channel is that, you know, one of the reasons that we try to show how powerful real estate can be is you take $10,000, say you put it in the stock market and you get a 10% return, which is a great year in the stock market, $10,000 at 10%, that's $1,000. And then uh, as opposed to buying a home, let's just say it's $300,000, take that 10 grand as a down payment, boom, you have a new house. And if that house appreciates in one year at 3%, just a regular average appreciation at 3%, well, which one's going to have a, a greater return in terms of just dollars? Well, when I ask this question to somebody who's not in numbers like you and I, um, we get kind of crazy answers, mm-hmm. but obviously it's, it's $9,000, which yeah. 9,000 is a lot bigger than $1,000. And that's just one example, as you mentioned, the, the other reasons why real estate can be powerful, but 9,000 to 1,000 is a nine time difference. And then if you multiply that over a number of years and you get more properties along the way, I mean, things get, get exponential. So that first property that you purchased, you said for 650 single family, I think in 2019, 
what would you guess that property is valued at today? It's probably worth, I, I bought the house across the street a month, like two months ago and I paid, it was identical and I paid an almost identical, I paid 977. So it'd probably be worth about 950. Okay. So that's I mean, roughly 40, 50% increase. Correct. Yeah. Three years. So, and that's massive. That's absolutely yeah. massive. And you, you acquired the property. Um, so you, so it went up, what, what is that? 300,000 plus ish. Yeah. You know, again, it's all just on paper at this moment in time, but you it went up $300,000 in a couple of years. And how much was your down payment? Uh, 130,000. Okay. So you basically three times your money on the appreciation in, in three years. Yeah. You're not going to get that in an ETF. Never. Plus cash flow, which has been phenomenal, you know, and um, the loan is just going to start paying itself down even quicker because the first five years of a 30 year fixed rate loan is mostly interest. Once you hit that five year mark, you start paying a ton of principal down. So, I mean, that's why I love talking about this stuff, it's about, especially somebody who is in your age range where, you know, the average age is the first home buyers in the 35 range, right? I mean, yeah, uh, that's obviously shifted in the last couple of years. But let's say you're 25 and you're out there listening to this channel and you say, well, I can't buy a house. I don't have the money. I don't have the cash or whatever reason is. That's obvious, right? There's a million reasons why somebody can't buy yeah. a house. Um, but what if somebody figures out a way to be able to get into the game? And, you know, we talk about this on this channel, the stair step method, which is kind of basically what you've done. You buy a property, live in it for a period of time, save up by the next one, turn the old one to a rental. If you do that a couple of times over over the years, you know, you can build a pretty massive portfolio putting low dollars of down payment in each time, which the minimum down payment, this is called 5%. And so if you buy four properties, you know, over that time span, that's a 10 year head start of appreciation and equity pay down before the average person right now may not even be buying their first house, which is just crazy. The amount of the, the, the math and the, and the grass, you know, the difference in terms of, of net worth stacking up, you know, versus the average person versus the person who gets in the game. And you don't have to get to the game regardless of where you are in your market. It doesn't have to be a million dollar property. It can be a 150 or 250 or whatever it is. Getting 100%. in the game, getting in the game is important. So um, getting into the game, by buying that first property. And it sounds like you had a pretty good idea of maybe what you wanted to be able to do along the way in terms of rentals. But, you know, how was your viewpoint on real estate and, and the possibilities that are out there changed now versus right before you bought that first property? Um, I love that question. And I'm going to answer something about getting in the game really quick. There's a few ways you could do it. If you don't have income, you could find a co-borrower. If you don't have assets, maybe you have a 401k you could tap into, or you have somebody that could give you a gift. If you don't have credit, you're, you're, you're going to be screwed. You got to find somebody to help you there. But let's say other options. You could do seller financing, where if you found a seller who might be willing to hold a note, you don't need to qualify for a conventional mortgage or an FHA mortgage. It's another great way to, to get into you know buying your first property. Um, there's also, you know, subject to, um, there's wrap mortgages. Those are definitely more in depth. I don't even have my hand head wrapped around it to explain it, but 100% great opportunities. You could look them up and, you know, check that out. Um, in regards to where I first thought of real estate's possibilities to today, when I bought my first house, I was just like thinking, can I make an extra like 30,000 a year? You know, can I like provide some income to like help pay for marketing or like, you know, you know, not worry about some of the bills or whatever the case may be. Now it's like, okay, how can we grow the business to one, make it more than my W2 income and eventually make it the biggest income? I, I can see myself, you know, not retiring from mortgages at 30, but like 
seriously having enough money where I could go all in on real estate. And that might be the highest return on investment in the future. I, I had a friend who's 26 now. He's, he's my age pretty much. He, he was an engineer making like 120,000 a year, bought his first property with an FHA loan, three family, Middletown, Connecticut. It was probably like two, maybe Meriden. And it was probably like $260,000 purchase price. He's since built up a portfolio of like 35 units using bank debt, credit unions, couple conventional loans, some seller financing. And he left his engineering job to go full-time in real estate. And he probably makes like, you know, I'm guessing around 200K a year in cash flow to like sustain his lifestyle and grow. So I know that the opportunity is huge. And like, for me, it's like, all right, I want to keep buying student rentals in the market I'm in. And then eventually you have enough cash flow coming in. Business I'm in is very cash flow heavy. There's not a much appreciation. There's no liquidity events. I'm not going to be able to, you know, have this huge waterfall of $3 million hit me if I did something on a commercial side. But the cash flow now, you know, is safety. And we can use that cash flow each year to now start go buy, you know, triple net properties, retail strip centers, and take it to go do that in, in a few years time. I love it. So replacing your W-2 income. I mean, that that's bottom line, right? Like not have to rely on your job, a job, right? I mean, is that, is that pretty much sum it up? 100%. That, I mean, that's the goal is to literally walk away from your W-2 job if, if you don't want to. For, it's a little different for me personally right now with, with the mortgage business. And, and now, you know, my dad owns it and eventually it'll be mine and my brother's. But like when I first got started, I was like, all right, what can I, because I was working that Wall Street job. It happened a lot quicker than I thought. But like, how can I replace my income from a job that I don't like and really get my time back to do what I want, which I'm doing now. I love the mortgage business. It's a blast. So, you know, in, in your network, in your, in your friends and family circles, right? I mean, do you have a lot of people talk about that out loud? Hey, my goal someday is not have to rely on my job. Or do you think people think it, don't say it, or think it, but they don't think it's possible? I mean, what do you, what do you see around you from, from that mindset of getting out of your W2 job? The, I do a good job of surrounding myself with people with the same mindset. So a lot of my friends are people that I've done business with that have bought real estate and have the same mindset of continuing to acquire assets and get better each year, whether it's, you know, health, fitness, wealth, whatever it is. Um, so we all talk about how can we continue to buy more assets so that we don't have to rely on an income or a W-2 job. And we like the thrill of finding a deal. We like structuring deals. We like, you know, real estate's all about solving problems for the seller, your tenant, et cetera. So we're doing all of oh, one. We're doing, you know, <laughs> I had my brother pop in. Jeez, kill me. Uh, we're, you know, it's all about problem solving. So we're having those conversations all the time. And whether it's like we're bringing people together for dinners, happy hours, et cetera, that's always, the conversations are always revolving around that. How can you get your time freedom back? How can you, How can you build time freedom? Back. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in our, in our job, right? I mean, we're talking to people every single day, yep. all kinds of different walks of life, ages, backgrounds, experience. And some people think like that. Some people want to think like that. And some people have no interest in thinking like that. And everyone's probably you know, on some spectrum of those things. And, you know, I think the purpose of, of this channel for me is to be able to show, you know, ways that people are getting ahead, ways that people are getting out of the rat race, you know, taking that fear and the struggle and the pain and, and harnessing it to be able to get to where you want to go and, and reach, your, reach your, your dreams and your goals. Um, but you can't make somebody do something. You can't make somebody want to do something. And 
but at the same time, the more that people like you and I and anybody else that's out there that's talking about this and showing regular people that are doing it, you know, because the, the the subconscious of this country has been shaped over many decades and, and years to go get a job, get your 401k, retire at 60, whatever, and have your social security. And, you know, as I've kind of gone through this, this platform uh, and had enough, enough, enough episodes and along the way started like looking at some of the conversations and the storylines is like all these people that are doing their different things, they've gone through something, struggle, pain, fear, whatever, that's pushed them out of their comfort zone um, to go reach these crazy higher levels. You know, th- those are the things that, you know, I think are important to, to be aware of because pain struggle is not always a bad thing. It actually can be a good thing if you look at it from the right, uh, the right mindset. And so, but that, that's, that subconscious, the more that we talk about this, maybe, more people hear it. More people think that it's possible. More people go get a side hustle, turn that side hustle into a business that turn, earns three times as much income as their shitty W2 job was making or whatever and build more skills, uh, build more experience to yeah. be able to get better at your job, you know? So I, I say that all out loud because, you know, you're on you're on Twitter, you're building, you're building your following. And um, when, when did you start your Twitter account or start getting active on your, on your Twitter account? I started posting in November of uh, 2022. So it's like almost four full months. Okay. And and I think you're over a thousand followers at this point. So give or take, which is pretty, pretty badass. Um, short time frame to build up that much. What, what are your thoughts on that? Why is that important to you to be, to be consistent there? So I actually use Twitter. Um, I use two tools to help me with Twitter. One's a scheduler. So I schedule all my posts in advance. And the second is a, like an engagement tool. So I'm able to engage with a lot of people at once. So I don't have to have my phone out all day during the day. And I found, and other people say the same thing, that Twitter's audience or the people on Twitter seems like they have a higher IQ than other platforms. 100, I mean, like t- TikTok versus Twitter, there's got to be like 40, I, you know, t- the difference is crazy. I found that by posting consistently on Twitter about my story, what I've done with the mortgage business, real estate investing and educating and helping others, People self-select and want to reach out to you and connect with you. And maybe if you're from a smaller town or area, like where I'm from, there's not a ton of people my age compared to when I was living in Manhattan. So Twitter is like that community where people will reach out to you that are like-minded and it's a great place to connect. And then from there, you know, you hop on a phone call and you don't know where the conversation is going to go. Like you and me hopped on a call and now we're here. I've talked to other people and we're setting up like, you know, I, I have one guy who's a power, he does, has a power washing business in Westchester, 30 minutes from me. He might end up doing a few, you know, a few of our houses this summer. And it's like, you know, you want to support other people on the platform. You want to see other people do well. It's a great place to connect. It's been awesome. I love it. I love it. We're, we're running short on time here. We got a few more minutes left. Um, kind of one important question, kind of going back to the, uh, the pain and struggle, you know, Patrick, Beth, David, you know, Life insurance CEO, big following on on all the all the social media. You kind of coined the term paradigm shift. That, that one moment in life, or that one thing in life that just shapes your life and puts you on a different trajectory. Um, that pushes somebody out of their comfort zone. I mean, is there a moment like that that happened to you along your way in your journey to kind of help you know get you to where you've gotten today? I would say the biggest thing I had with with jumping out of the comfort zone was it was my sophomore year, and everybody was you know after my freshman year, I was kind of done going out to bars, partying, you know, I did that three, four nights, nights a week, freshman year. I kind of looked around and was like, this, is, this isn't what I want. And I want to start doing something different. Like I want to start focusing on my career and like thinking about what I'm going to do after college for whatever reason, it kind of hit me quick. And everybody that sophomore year was 
you know, not a bad thing, but they were still going out, having a great time. And I focused on just meeting people in the business, cold emailing, cold messaging, hopping on calls. I, I still have a spreadsheet. It probably ended up being like 250 to 300 names of like people that I've spoken with. They were in some kind of financial services business. And I, I probably visited, you know, a dozen to 15 different trading desks. And like that year, I just like kind of turned the knob on what I wanted. And, you know, since then there's, there's been smaller things. And, you know, when my mom bought two properties of student rentals, she bought two at once to get started in August, 2018. I was working at Citigroup as an intern, then came home that Friday when she called me and, and we looked at them that day. That was another shift of like, you know, when you take a step back and realize there's a guy on Twitter, real estate God or real estate G6, something like that. If you pull one or two big levers every year, it'll make a bigger impact than anything else you could do. So like for me, if I could buy two really good student rental deals over the next three years, every year, my, I don't care what happens in my mortgage business it could blow up in flames. Cause as long as I pull big levers, like buying those student rentals, that's, what's going to drive my net worth forward and get my, you know, ability to control my time back. So those, those are the two biggest things like my sophomore year. And then seeing the shift of like how real estate can create wealth. So that, that sophomore year is just, just something just kind of randomly click along the way. I mean, anything stand out of, of maybe you're at a party and seeing people do X, Y, Z or a conversation with somebody or see like anything come to mind. So funny. You say that I, you know, I had that internship and I worked a few days a week there. I actually don't have anything that clicked besides like, I just remember, you know, eventually the, the scene getting old. It might've been, I, I might've been out at a bar one night and was like, is this all there, all there is to it? And I was like, can't, this can't be it. But, uh, that, that was the year I started taking things definitely more seriously. Okay. Um, so I have to ask this cause you know, most of the people that I talk to are going to be a little, little bit older than you and I'm, I'm 39. So I'm, I've been yeah. married for a long time. So this is not what's on my mind, obviously. Um, but from, um, you know, dating standpoint, you know, where, where are things from, from a dating standpoint, you with somebody, not with somebody looking, not looking too busy. What, what, what's for the listeners out there that may be seeing this guy who's a, you know, go getter, making things happening, you know, good, good person to be able to, to learn from. What tell us about that. I I've probably been on like not, uh, 10 dates with two different girls in the last three years. So I haven't dated much. I would be looking, but I view it as like, I'm focusing on work right now. If the right person came along, great. But I was talking to my brother and a buddy last night. And I said, you know, in like two years, there's no plan. So I don't know. But I feel like when I start dating, I'm going to date fast. I'm going to try and find somebody that I want to settle down with and like, you know, like start then. So that, that's where we're at now. Single now, I am looking, but I'm not actively looking. When I am actively looking, I will make, it'll be like a, a second job. Fair enough. Um, kind yeah. of on, on the same light, right? You know, the average age of a first-time home buyer is 36, you know, and you've got however many units, 18, 16 units that you've built up with, with your team over time. So that's definitely not the norm. Um, from a, I kind of use this word term gravity, right? Like when you do things in life and you help other people and you pull people along so that sometimes they don't not want to, to be pulled yeah. along and, and you show people that, that things are possible. You kind of build this gravity of, of showing people that things are possible, that pe people can get ahead and take that kind of W2 job and throw it in the, in the trash and not have, to, not have to rely on it, which can be a freeing thing to not have to, to know that you don't have to rely on, on someone else, another job. Have you seen people in your network, friends, family that surprised you? Like, oh shit, I never thought they would get this here, but they've done it. They've done, they followed some of these principles that you've been kind of demonstrating. 
100%. I have buddies that like I started talking about real estate with two and a half years ago and they've bought two or three properties. You know, they're on their way to replacing their full-time income and they just, honestly, some of it's been listening to me, but like we just all surrounded ourselves with like the right circle and they're just doing the same things that everybody in that circle is doing. I love it. Regular guys that are just, you know, one step at a time and it's worked out phenomenal. So somebody out there that's an, a budding entrepreneur or an already an entrepreneur has a business or whatnot um, who may not be active on social media or may not be very, you know, I don't want to use the word boastful, but, but sharing their story, sharing their ideas and sharing their insights. Um, you, you're obviously have chosen to do that, but if you were to give any, any advice to somebody about that kind of same point, you know, helping show that it's, things are possible in whatever industry that they are in, what advice or tips or ideas would you give to that person who may be not doing that right now? The, the fear of not doing it or, or what people think nobody's going to, you know, shame you for it. I personally haven't done enough sharing personal stories as much as sharing business information and like real estate information. So that's something I want to work on, but it's if the earlier you start, the more people you can help and also the more connections you're going to make in a positive way. So I would just start A to Z where you came from, where you are now and where you're going to go and just break that down and start sharing that. Cool. Cool. Okay. So Goals for 2023. By the end of the year, what's one goal that you want to be able to hit? For my origination business, I want to consistently be doing $6 million a month. Okay. In okay. loans. Okay. I love it. I love it. This market, obviously, it's crazy. You know, as we were yeah. kind of talking about before, the amount of transactions is a lot lower than right now than it was, you know, in years past. So how does somebody take market share? I mean, that, that's really what's going to have to take B is taking market share. So um, how are you going to do that? How, how are you doing that? I think the best way is kind of a couple of things. One, two things. One we've talked about, and it's building a brand and helping other people through social media. I think by the end of this year, I'm actually, um, I have my first person I met from Twitter under contract closing in April. So by the end of this year, I think I'll probably close half a dozen loans from Twitter. That's and that will continue to compound. I was gonna say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're in your your license in multiple states too. Yeah, we're in we're in 10 states. I'm getting licensed in California. I just got licensed in Tennessee. We're getting licensed in California, Texas, Pennsylvania because of Twitter. Because I have so many people reaching out from in those states. But um, yeah, we, we're already licensed in the Carolinas, Florida, the Northeast. And so so building a brand, talking about what you do is super important, connecting with people on social media. The second thing is our current referral partners just continuing to provide value. So like in the mortgage business, most of our referrals usually is from real estate agents, right? Would you say the same? The majority, yeah. A large portion. So it's how can I provide value to my agents or the people that I work with that other people aren't doing? So one thing that we do consistently that's been a home run is we'll have a professional videographer come over, set up a studio, shoot content. We provide scripts, we provide audio, lighting, camera, et cetera. You know, the videographers there. We have somebody edit the scripts. We have like a done for you service for our agents so that they could build their own brand and share that content. And that's been a home run. We only charge, you know, we're, we're not trying to make any money. We just cover the cost of editing, but helping other people grow their brand or the or people that send us business has been super important too. And now we're building relationships and going deeper with others. So it's how can I, we provide more value to our referral partners? And then, you know, the social media side of it for us is how can I share what I'm doing and try and help others? 
So again, if you're a buyer, if you're a real estate investor, if you're an agent, um, what's the best way to get a hold of you and your, your team? Yeah, GCHAMS on Twitter, G-C-I-A-M-S. Cool. The bread and butter. I love it, I love it. Yeah, uh, we'll have to have you on again next time. Uh, maybe dig into a few more stories, dig into a few other examples and uh, maybe even talk talk COSEG down the road, a little COSEG nation. I would love that. That's been a home run for any for us, for me personally, and then in any real estate pros. Yeah, like I know we got to jump off here, but like I did that for the first time in 2021, and like my whole world just like shifted. My like the, just the lights went on. I'm like holy shit, I I didn't even know about this. Are you gonna buy any more sh- short term rentals this year? Um, I don't know. It depends because right now we've got a big land development that we're doing in, in Florida, like Destin's uh, Santa Rosa Beach right now. Um, so we're trying to preserve capital for the time being for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if a few other things kind of fall into place, the goal be, yeah, yeah, the goal <laughs> be, yeah. Why, why do you ask? Well, cost seg, you could, you know, bonus appreciate, can you bonus appreciate a full short term rental property in year one? Yep. Yeah. And if you do that every single year, you know, like just keep it, keep it going. But I, I guess, um, I think it's going, oh, they're phasing it out over a period of time. I forget the exact time frame. I think the next four, four years, 80%, 60, 40, 20. Yeah. So the time, the time is ticking to go, to go make it happen. But, yep. But yeah, man, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to catching back up and, and see more uh, of your journey and looking, you know, happy for you and excited to, to catch up with you. But uh, thanks again for making time out of your busy day. 100%. Thanks, Joel. All right, Catano. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. If you're ready to jumpstart your financial journey and take it to the next level, you may want to join our 30-day habit challenge, which you can find on our website, strivefor25.com, strive, F-O-R, the number 25.com. You can also follow us on YouTube and Instagram by searching strive for the number 25. And if you have any questions and want to reach out to us, you can also connect with us on our website. Thank you so much.